This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, website, portfolio, or an online store. To create your own space, visit squarespace.com and save 10% by using offer code TREK8. And also by TrekFan. It's not just a fan club, it's an adventure. You'll explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. Don't miss out. Help move us toward the Star Trek future by visiting trekfan.org. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm slash donate to get our new alien badges and art prints, featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our Star Trek books and comics podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as he is every week, is my esteemed co-host, Matthew Rushing. Matthew, how are you doing this week? Chris, doing pretty well. Um, you know, it's it's been a it's been a long summer. I don't know about you, but I just feel like I have been busy every single day of the summer. And so it is winding down now, um, kind of counting down the days until some of my commitments over so I can just maybe relax a little bit. In fact, even taking a few hours off tomorrow since it's Friday, we're recording here on Thursday and going to have a little bit extra long weekend. So how about you? That sounds nice. Yeah, it's been the same here. And I know the summer is progressing. I know we're getting closer to football season because Today is August 2nd, and right on cue for August, the cicadas are out. It's like a little orchestra going on all around town now, (laughs) so I have to really seal all the windows up to record the show today so everyone can't hear them chirping away in the background. Well, that's too bad. You know, I I know here in Texas, you know that it's summer the minute you start hearing them. Um, You know, they, they, they start to come out, you know, midday, and then they're going all night, and so it's... uh. I don't know. There's something about a cicada that makes you think, wow, this is this is summer, especially in the South. This is summer. So. I remember when I first moved to Japan and it was it was beginning of September and we went to a Japanese inn to a ryokan and I heard the cicada chirping away. And then I remembered reading Dave Barry's book. Dave Barry does Japan. And he mentions in there <laughs> going to a Japanese inn and he said, and we had a room facing out onto an insect-infested garden. <laughs> I thought, now I know what he means. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and of course you're right. You know, we're moving closer to that football season where A&M and Alabama, who is ranked number one in the coaches poll today, uh, starting off, uh, we'll knock them off quickly. It'll be fine. But uh, it's going to be a good season, I think, college football-wise. Is that the, the Texas A&M Cicadas? That's your mascot, right? No, our mascot is Reveille, the dog. Um, and so, yeah, she just eats cicadas for breakfast. She eats cicadas. Yeah, I, right. I got it. All right. Well, let's jump into some real Star Trek stuff here. <laughs> now, 
Our friend Kirsten Bear has a new novel coming out, Voyager Protectors. I do not know if the Voyager crew, Chakotay and his crew, are going to be protecting us from space cicadas or not. Can you tell me what's going to be going on in this book? Actually, that sounds like a fantastic Voyager episode. In fact, that sounds like a lot of Voyager episodes. But um, actually, this one, you know, following the destruction they've had of of, uh, four fleet vessels with the whole Omega Continuum issue that they had and the internal tide, they're going to be continuing to explore in the Delta Quadrant. Um, Unfortunately... Things aren't going to go so well from Captain Janeway, apparently, to the, in this blurb. Um, she's going to get recalled back to Starfleet and have to go through a bunch of fitness tests, questions, talk about trauma that she's had, and all these kind of things. And uh, so she's going to feel, it sounds like, really powerless to help the Voyager and its fleet. So I, I don't know. I just love that uh, Kirsten's not afraid to have these characters go through some real things, you know. Uh, just because you come back from the dead doesn't mean you don't have questions to answer. I also like that Kirsten here is not afraid to do a franchise crossover because apparently Starfleet's commander-in-chief is Admiral Akbar. Oh, sorry, sorry. That says Akar. Yes. Akbar. Um, I'm confused here for a moment. They're slightly related, <laughs> but... Um, they're slightly related. Yeah. Um, Admiral Akar has never screamed, It's a trap! Um, in his life, uh, whereas his his distant cousin, that is all he says. So I don't know if those words will be uttered in this book, but it would be kind of funny if they were. Speaking of It's a Trap and Admiral Akbar, I also, and college football, I don't think that Admiral Akar has ever been considered as the new mascot for the University of Mississippi. You know, probably not. Um, I don't think he has the gravitas to really be able to pull it off. And so, yeah. But this book, I mean, I love Kirsten's books, and I can't wait for this to come out. I love that as well. We're seeing this lineup here. We're not getting a bunch of TOS in a row. We're starting off with some Voyager here in February, and that is really exciting to me, especially as our book reviewer, um, that we're going to be kind of mixing it up next year. Definitely. Yeah. So you can pre-order this now if you'd like. It's going to be out, as you just mentioned, Matthew, in February of next year. And we can find out what's going to happen with Captain Chakotay. And maybe, just maybe, some space cicadas will sneak in. Well, in March of next year, we are going to be getting another dose of TOS, this time from Greg Cox with his novel, No Time Like the Past. And this is a diplomatic mission to the planet Yusab. And there's going to be a run-in with some Orion Raiders who are trying to disrupt negotiations. That sounds a little bit familiar, in fact. It's something we might talk about a little later today. And there's going to be some violence. And of course... The Enterprise is caught in the middle of this. Which is strange, but I think it's probably because the Enterprise was the only ship in the sector. What do you want to bet, Chris? I think that's a pretty good bet. I would make that bet. What's going to be really interesting about this, Chris, is there's going to be a weird twist here. Uh, There's going to be a great crossover. The one that we've all been waiting for, Captain James T. Kirk meets Annika Seven, a.k.a. Seven of nine. I'm not quite sure um, Kirk is the best person to meet Seven, but uh, if anybody can teach Seven what it's like to be treated like a woman, 
I think Kurt can do it. Well, I'm sure there's that great line in the book where Kirk goes up to her and says, so why don't you show me just how this whole assimilation thing works there, Annika? Yeah, and that's where this book turns into Trek After Dark. Kirk <laughs> <laughs> and if Greg is listening to the show right now, he's going, guys, guys, I didn't write that. At least I didn't send it to the publisher. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, it's, 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 it's going to be interesting. Um, Seven's going to be taking part in a archaeological expedition on an obscure planet in the um, Delta Quadrant, obviously in the future compared to where Kirk is. And she's going to be transported across time and space to the same planet that Kirk was in at the beginning of the book. So, which is really interesting to me that, you know, the galaxy would bring these two together. It just seems like, you know, Kirk might have found his match. I, I'm, I'm not sure he's going to be able to warm up that frosty exterior at all. Yeah, well, we'll see. It's going to, it is an interesting crossover. And it's about time that Kirk met Seven because it'll just set everything right with the timeline, with the Star Trek universe. So you can pre-order this book as well. It's going to be out next March and will be a very interesting read from Greg Cox. And Matthew, we have only one other item in news today, and it relates to what we're going to talk about in the feature. This is part two of Christopher L. Bennett's Enterprise Rise of the Federation, and this one is called Tower of Babel. Chris, this one looks really exciting. It's really going to pick up where we had the last book leave off, um, and they're going, you know, the... um, the great thing is Admiral Archer is really going to be working to bring all of these worlds together, but uh, there's going to be some factions within the Federation amongst its enemies that oppose an alliance with the Rigel system that Archer's really working for. What it says in this blurb is that Archer's going to need the skills of all of his former crewmates to prevent them from plunging Rigel into a system-wide war, which is really exciting. Uh, you know, uh, Averting war in this latest book, and again, really doing a great job, I think, of uh, setting up just the turbulent nature of trying to set up some kind of government as as massive and big and far-reaching as the Federation. Exactly. Yeah. I. You know, we talked about this recently, and and I said we need to have there needs to be an obstacle to the founding of the Federation, and. I like and I enjoyed, and as we'll talk about in the future today, I like the way that Bennett set up some of the the power struggle and and how I I think, you know, as Star Trek fans, without Enterprise in the mix, just with TOS forward in the mix, we kind of had this vision that somehow all the world's problems were solved and the Federation just kind of came together and everyone was all happy and let's go explore and let's be one big happy family. But we know from real life, you know, things just can't quite work like that. And so uh, this is great that that the turbulence is going to continue here in April when Tower of Babel comes out. Well, it's really interesting, too. I mean, just seeing how, you know, they even mention in the newest book that we're going to talk about in the future, how when America tried to create the world's, you know, first democracy in the way that we have, that it doesn't go well 
at the very beginning, I mean, it, it's a very turbulent process, you know, it takes a very long time. And, and so seeing that really for the Federation, something even bigger and larger and, and more grandiose in scale is really going to take a lot of time and a lot of work to be able to get to what we see by the time Kirk comes around. Um, and so uh, I, I do like that Christopher Bennett is really is really working this in um, and, and giving us this real world feel of what it would be like to set up something so massive as the Federation. Definitely, definitely. And, and hopefully that technological, structural, and even aesthetic uh, development that we get in the first book will continue to be developed in the second book as well, I hope, because I really enjoyed those aspects as well. So watch for this coming out April of next year. And again, you can already pre-order this on Amazon if you'd like. And, uh, you know, Larry said when he was on recently, when we did the Stellar Cartography book, he said that pre-orders are kind of like the Facebook likes for... Amazon in the publishing world. And I think that's a great point. You know, by pre-ordering these things, I know it's a long way out, but you are sending a signal to the publisher that we're interested in these books. So so don't be afraid to go ahead and pre-order these if you are planning to pick them up anyway. All right, Matthew. Well, that's all we have in news today. But before we jump into our discussion of the first Rise of the Federation book, let's tell everyone a little bit about our sponsor for this week's show, Squarespace. They're the all-in-one platform that combines hosting and content management to make it simple for you to create your own space online. And that could be a blog, it could be a website, a portfolio, or an online store. I've been a Squarespace user myself for the past six years. I build not only my company's website, but Trek FM is built on Squarespace. I build websites for clients on Squarespace, and my personal blog is there as well. And you know, apart from the simple fact that the tools are really awesome... What I really like about Squarespace is that they are constantly improving their platform. They're adding new features, new designs, and even better support, which is amazing because they have the best support you're going to find anywhere, but they're always striving to improve that. And I love that about them. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you want some help, they're there for you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And amazingly, that great support and all these amazing tools starts at just $8 a month. And if you sign up for the annual plan, you can even get a free custom domain name. So it's really an amazing service. And Matthew, why don't you tell everyone about three points about Squarespace that really show why it is the platform to choose when you want to create an online presence? Well, Chris, I think one that's really important to me is that Squarespace is design-focused. Um, I don't know about you, but I really hate going to a website that everything is so cluttered. It's hard for me to be able to find anything. It's so overdone that I'm really missing, I think, what the website's meant to do, which is to give me whoever's doing this website their content. And Squarespace really helps you do that. Their their templates are extremely clean, um, and they allow your content to take the focus of the website, which is so important. I mean, you know, if you're writing a blog or you're creating a store and, and showcasing your work art-wise, you really want that to be what stands out, not the website itself. Uh, you, you want it to be easy to navigate and to use, and, and Squarespace does that really well. Uh, and then, of course, if you're creating, say, a blog or some sort of store where you're selling your merchandise or any of those kind of things, you're going to want to be able to connect your site to all the different accounts that are out there, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, Google, 
all of these social network sites that really help you to be able to get your content out there. Squarespace makes that easy. You don't have to worry about that. It helps you link to all those accounts and be able to share very quickly what you're doing on your blog right away with your followers. And then for the most important thing, I think now these days, Chris, is that, you know, you have an iPad. I have an iPad. We both have iPhones. We tend to look up websites on those. Nothing is more frustrating than going to a website and having to try and navigate on especially your iPhone uh, or your mobile device and not having the website be responsive to the mobile design, but also have it be a smart mobile design so it doesn't feel watered down. It just feels like a better, easier to use website on your device. Squarespace does that perfectly and has unique mobile designs so that every time somebody visits your site from, say, a phone or some sort of iPad or some tablet or something like that, your site automatically scales to look beautiful on every device, which is, you know, really important. Again, if you're trying to have your content take first stage. Most definitely. That's been a huge time-saving feature for me because I no longer have to worry about building one version for the desktop and one version for mobile. It's a, it's a great feature. And, you know, another great feature that they added recently is the e-commerce feature. So if you want to set up a shop and sell things, you can do that in just a matter of minutes, including the ability to process credit cards online, which is, of course, very important if you want to actually sell something and make it easy on your customers. So that's there now as well. And you can do all of this without any coding knowledge whatsoever. You can create a beautiful website, beautiful blog, beautiful store. You don't need to know how to code anything. But if you do love to code and you want to have complete, total control over every little aspect of your website and its code, you can do that too because Squarespace has a fantastic developer's platform that you can access. But don't take our word for it. Try this for yourself. We would love for you to go and find out firsthand why I build all my websites on Squarespace and why Trek FM is built there as well. Just go to squarespace.com to start a free 14-day trial. There's no credit card required. Just enter your name and email address. And in a matter of minutes, you'll be building your website. If you already use a platform like WordPress, you can import your website from there. See how it's going to look on Squarespace. See how the Squarespace tools give you everything you need to create an exceptional website or blog. Then when you decide to sign up, and I know you're going to want to, make sure to use our offer code TREK8 to get 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts. And as I mentioned at the beginning, if you choose the annual option, you'll also receive a free domain registration. So visit squarespace.com and use offer code TREK8. And we thank Squarespace for their support of TREKFM. And we thank you for supporting Squarespace. And that helps us bring this programming to you every week. Well, Chris, we're going to be talking about A Choice of Futures, Rise of the Federation by Christopher Bennett, which is under the heading of Star Trek Enterprise, even though this doesn't follow the ship Starship Enterprise anymore. The Enterprise at this point has been decommissioned after its long war with the Romulans. Uh, it has been damaged too badly uh, for it to be really in service anymore. And so actually the main ship that we get in this book is to Paul's ship, the Endeavor, which is the last NXO class ship in existence. And so um, she is the captain of that ship. Archer is now an admiral. A lot of things have changed but Christopher Bennett is really setting the stage for us for what is going to happen 
as the galaxy tries to come together in the first intergalactic democracy that uh, has been seen. And so, uh, Chris, I, I thought that, um, you know, just before we kind of get into some specifics, wanted to let everybody know Chris and I are doing the review today of this book, so we will be getting into some spoiler territory. So if you have not read the book, I suggest go pick the book up, put it on your iPad, your pad, your Kindle, or, you know, whatever it is that you want to read it in. You could even get into paper. They still come like that. Um, and, uh, Do they make still sure make you... paper books, Matthew? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I'll, I don't, I'll Google it when we're done, Chris. <laughs> but I just wanted to let everyone know we are going to be talking about some spoilers, and so I didn't want you to be upset if we uh, kind of dive into the meat of this book. Um, and uh, so you were been fair warned. Spoiler warning. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. So, Chris, just first off, I mean, I mean, we have read a lot of TOS and uh, had a lot of that. So, just first impressions, you know, reading through A Choice of Futures, what did you think? Well, I really enjoyed the book. Of course, I enjoyed the TOS books and going on a new adventure with Kirk and Spock, because as Dayton has said, you can never have too many of those adventures with Kirk and Spock. And I think that's a wonderful thing about TOS and the Star Trek universe in general, is you can always just send the crew on another adventure. But what I really enjoyed about this book is that I feel that sense of moving forward. You know, we're not we're not at a static point in time and just going on an adventure, but we're we're following a process. And of course, this book does take place over the course of a month, but there's that overall drive to move from the world of Enterprise that we saw on television to TOS. And we get to see a lot of great transition taking place here as the Vulcans and the Tellarites and the Andorians and the humans start to try to merge their technology, to merge their governmental and military structures and try to you know, make that cohesive. And and we get all of that on top of the rest of the story of what's going on with this alien race that they call the mutes, as well as the factions that are trying to disrupt the formation, a successful formation of the Federation. So I really enjoyed it for those aspects. I have to agree with you there, Chris. I think that one of the things that Christopher L. Bennett has really done in this book uh, is done a great job of world building, which is so important when you are creating that kind of bridge in time. You know, we don't really know anything about this time period. Uh, it, it's it's kind of a blank. Um, David Goodman's book, uh, The History of the Federation, did a little bit of this. Uh, or excuse me, that was Federation 150 years. But... Um, you know, Pocket has allowed Bennett to be able to have his own say in how these things went. So, I mean, world building, we get uniforms, why the uniforms kind of look the way they do. Um, they're a bridge from Enterprise to TOS. You know, we, we get the taking of, of all that technology and how does an Andorian shield harmonics work on a Starfleet ship? warp you know all these things how does that all work together i mean it's not just like you can just slam some technology together it just works perfectly so i think that's one of the things i really responded to in this book because i was just able to kind of dive in really deep you know and i wanted to continue to know more because i don't know anything about this time period so it's really new whereas you know sometimes for me reading a tos book i i feel like i've seen it before because there's 
you know, it's just another adventure. Right. Whereas this is a brand new adventure that I have no idea about. Um, and all these characters, there are only a few of them where we kind of know what their history is. The rest of them, you're able to really create their future in a way that I don't know what happens to Mayweather or Hoshi really, or, you know, all these people. Uh, so that's exciting to me. Uh, I think it, it really stands out is, is probably my favorite book so far of the year um, that I've read. I've just really enjoyed this one. So, Yeah, I love the uniform evolution and the way that Bennett describes it in the book because as a reader, of course, we're familiar with the Enterprise uniforms and we're familiar with the TOS uniforms. And so he's able to actually describe it in words in a way that it's still very vivid in our minds as we're reading it. We can really picture these uniforms. And I won't give away all the details because you can enjoy that as you read. But it's a great mixture and a great transition. Uh, everything from you know indicating rank to the color schemes and, and how they start to work out insignia. And, and it, it does help you visually bridge that gap from the human solo exploration of the NX-01 to the true Starfleet, the true Federation time. Well, and, and two, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and, and one of the first big kind of discussions, and it runs throughout the entire book, was this. What is Starfleet going to be? Is it a military? Yeah. Is it, are you explorers? Um you know, what, what are we going to do with this force? Um, and, and how do we use it? And I mean, these huge questions to be answered, which, you know, fans have kind of been debating over the years for a really long time. Just, you know, is Starfleet really just a military organization that happens to be explorers too sometimes? Or is it, are they really explorers that just have ships that can defend themselves? And, and, Watching the, you know, combined Starfleet with the Andorians, the Tellarites, the Vulcans who have mothballed their Starfleet and the humans, putting that all together, it was really interesting. And how do we decide what we're going to be? How are we going to display ourselves to the rest of the galaxy? And how will our actions be perceived then as well? Right, yeah. And, and that thread runs all the way through the book, even to the very end of the book. And... If I were to sum up this book, if someone asked me, just very simply tell me what is this book about, that's what I think this book is about. What is Starfleet? What is the Federation going to be? And I think it's it's a good debate when we look at the 23rd and 24th century about what is Starfleet and what is the Federation because, well, especially Starfleet, because... On the basic level, yes, it is an exploratory organization, but the realities of life, you know, whether it's life here on Earth or whether it's life out in the universe, is that there's always going to be conflict. There's always danger. You're always going to have to protect yourself, and you're not going to always agree with those who you encounter. And I think there always ends up being a military element, but but then there's the question is, is that military element a self-defense element or is it an expansionist element? 
And all those questions are asked here. And I really like the fact that Bennett is able to do it in two ways. He does it as an internal debate between the commanders within Starfleet and also the government itself that's being formed. But he also adds that external influence that pushes their views in different directions and and it it forces them to to really debate internally it's not just an academic question right it's not just them sitting in a room deciding for themselves okay well academically theoretically should we be explorers or should we be a military organization they have to react to the external world and, and i like that and i also like that he effectively uses the temperaments of the different races within the Federation to further this debate. You know, you've got the humans who by nature are more of the explorers. And then you've got the Andorians who really lean towards Starfleet being a military organization. I think it's it's really interesting, too, to see how these same attitudes are, are being fleshed out in what you see happening on the starships themselves you know with these crews trying to intermingle i mean T'Pol has an andorian first officer and, and they they have a history of being antagonistic toward each other and those attitudes and everything that you bring to that trying to put them aside is so interesting to be able to watch and see um, and i think bennett does a great job of organically helping those characters kind of grow by the end um, and really uh, kind of work into a partnership together as the whole federation is kind of groaning as it's you know trying to figure out okay what are we going to be who are we going to be um and who are people going to think we're going to be because of the way that we act towards them it's just a big question i mean and, and i think you know really to kind of one of the next points is is this is the complications of a galactic democracy you know trying to work together with, I mean, think of how hard it is for us to work together. Just say in the United States, yeah. As as a as a so many types of people, we're all trying to work together, and we all have kind of different views on how things should look. I mean, it's a mess. I cannot imagine what it would be like on a galactic scale, where you're taking completely different types of people. You know, I mean, Vulcan pacifists with warrior-like Andorians who love their fight scenes to humans who just really want to be out there exploring to Tellarites who just really enjoy ripping you a new one because, uh, <laughs> you know, that's just what they do. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, it's, they do. <laughs> it's just really, really interesting. Yeah. The, the Andorian bit works really well for me, especially as a parallel to our own world and and even the 20th century and the 21st century now, because you have both voices on the Andorian side, where on the one hand, you have Andorians who can't let go of the past. You know, they think the Vulcans should still have to pay for all the Andorians who have died during their conflict over the years. And then you have the other voice that that's... You know, it happened in the past. T'Pol's not responsible for any of those deaths. You know, she was not involved in those conflicts personally. And now we're part of this federation together and we have to we have to let those conflicts 
go and that we have to come together to address the threats of our current day and the threats of our future. Well, and one of the things that I really liked that comes out in this, especially with her Andorian first officer, is this idea of not living in the past, letting it define you. The past, you need to learn from it. You need to take the lessons from it. But you also have to be able to move on. Because if you get mired in the past, you're just going to be doomed to repeat it and really see that play out and how these races are having to learn to work together. And I think that that's just a great look at it, even our world today. You know, every nation on this planet has made huge mistakes towards another nation and even people inside its own nation. Learning from the mistakes of that and then being able to move forward towards a better future is is something that's very difficult to do because our natural instinct is to want to hold a grudge. And, you know, obviously, even across the galaxy, that's the normal thing to want to do towards other races who have, you know, inflicted pain on you. But I think the story, especially when we get into the the mute story, really plays out this idea that it, it's it's communication that's going to help us build bridges. It's understanding of, of, of each other. And it's a, it's a way of being able to find the compromises that don't compromise what we want to be, which is really hard for the Federation at this point because they don't necessarily know what they want to be yet. Uh, right. And that's a hard thing to try and create the rules when you're not necessarily sure exactly what you're going to be yet. Yeah. And another thing that works well about this compared to, say, let's look at, well, okay, so TNG. The Klingons and the Federation are now allies at the beginning of the next generation. And that's a rocky road. And then we get into Deep Space Nine, and it's a very rocky road. Sometimes, you know, the Klingons are attacking the station. Sometimes the Klingons are fighting alongside the Federation. They have a a history of animosity towards each other, conflict, distrust, but they find ways to come together when they need to. And that's interesting, but what makes this more interesting is that all of these races are, they're not only trying to find a way to work together when it benefits them, they're trying to find a way to work together all the time, moving forward as one entity. And so that makes it even more interesting, this whole discussion even more interesting. Well, and then, Chris, we, we really get into that issue that I thought was, was, was great, is getting to see the kind of the further development of Trip. Now, if you had, if anyone has read, and spoiler alert, if anybody's read the Romulan War books, the second one ends 25 years later, where Trip is living as a gardener in Paul's house. And he lives with them and their children, and nobody knows who he is. So we know that 25 years from the end of that book, from the end of the Romulan War, they will end up together. But it's going to be a long road for them because Trip is still involved with Section 31. And there's this conflict really kind of brewing between him and Archer in the sense that Archer is still very much this person who wants to do things right. He's the idealist. And Tripper, tri- Tripper, was that Tripper John MD? That was a really popular right. show back in the eighties. <laughs> that spinoff from Mash, yeah, exactly. Um, Tripper John, Tripper John. <laughs> Trip has become much more the pessimist because of all that he's been through, and I find it just really interesting watching those two men 
really having to come to grips with who they are and what they've done. And, and Trip has done some things that make it very difficult for him to relate to anybody. And I thought one of the most beautiful things was watching him say, look, I will do anything to protect to Paul. She's the only one who knows who I am. And she's the only one who accepts me, even though she knows every single thing about me. And I thought that was really beautiful because isn't that really just the way it is in life? Like we will do anything to protect that one person who knows us and loves us beyond anything that's happened or that we've done. It's, it's a really, it's really awesome statement. So, um, but it's a big question, you know, do the ends justify the means and, and trip kind of lives more on that line and Archer is really he he's not there anymore he's not the same guy who you know was a part of that uh that Zindi incident yeah. I mean he he's he's grown beyond that he he's being able to recapture some of that innocence that he had I mean he's not quite so innocent anymore but he's been able to recapture that and I thought that was really interesting to see that in this book yeah I don't know if I would call it innocence but He's been able to recapture that that hope, I think, that things can be solved more through diplomatic channels. Things can be solved without going to extreme measures that, that violate our ethics and violate you know, the principles that we stand for. The, that was one of the interesting things that came out of the Zindi arc, was how that changed Archer in that sense. And... By the end of that, you really could see where Archer might identify with what Trip is doing here. But at this point, after this many years have passed, Archer has been able to to overcome that and kind mm-hmm. of become a more nuanced, more well-rounded person again. Um, well, maybe not again, maybe more so than before, because in the beginning he was really innocent Right. He right, didn't imagine exactly. that he would have to go out and fight everyone. Then the Zindi conflict happened, and that turned him into this just kind of extreme measure guy. And then here, he's been able to bring those two together. But the conversation that he has with Tripp is, is really interesting at the very end of the book. And, you know, Tripp... I don't think Tripp enjoys doing what he has to do for Section 31, but he feels like it's necessary for him to do it, to protect the Federation and protect everyone's way of life. But then Archer tells him that protecting the Federation is something that needs to be done in the light. And so he, Archer sees that, yes, these steps do sometimes need to be taken, but we need to find a way to do them that's more transparent because there's the danger. He says, we've seen how easily it could go astray if this stuff is done uh, behind the scenes and there's no accountability. Well, and what's really interesting too, Chris, on top of that, I think, uh, was the conversation that that, uh, Tripp has with the Orion slave girl that him and Archer kind of realize that they need to talk to and, and trip being immune to the pheromones is, is the one who's going to do the talking to her and in the conversation they have i thought was really telling she says to him but you're still lying to me and to yourself freedom is a lie it doesn't exist we all live within one set of walls or another you're no less trapped than i am trapped by that uniform by the things you've had to do to earn it 
to serve it. She draped herself across the bed. How can you offer me freedom when you sit there a slave as much as I am? And I think that that was just a an interesting conversation because it really rocks Trip to his core that basically he can't go home again. Uh, and he right. even admits that is I can't go home again because I can't let people see who I am now because they won't understand what I've had to do to save the Federation, what I've had to do to stay alive. Um, it's a it's a tough life, and I really liked the realism that um, Bennett adds here to to a man who you're right he doesn't want to be doing these things. And in some ways, he, you know, he tells Archer at the end, he says, I'm going to stay in Section 31 because I'm trying to hold them back. I, I, our methods aren't always perfect, but we're doing it for a good reason. We are, our heart is in the right place. And, and Trip wants to make sure that that heart stays closer to the light than the dark. And, uh, you know, if anybody can do it, I still think Trip can. And even in this book, you know, you see him and he's lost a lot. But there's still something holding on to him, and that's to Paul. And I think their relationship is was uh, pretty key to see. And I really liked that Bennett didn't shy away from, uh, especially in their relationship, some of the idiosyncrasies. Um, you know, their telepathic bond, where they can basically talk to each other while she's meditating. Mm-hmm. Um, those kind of things. I liked that he just went ahead and used them. And I think it was really important because Bennett was not afraid to dive in, create this story by using Enterprise lore. He doesn't go in and kind of like, I'm just going to go in and try and create as much things as I can. No, he uses the canon of Enterprise to create this story. And I think that was brilliant work uh, because it really shows you, you know, taking some of those storylines, you you know, fight or flight. How are you going to use that? But, you know, using that situation and those aliens that you met there. Bringing the X and R back in. Exactly. I mean, fantastic writing, really servicing the fans here in a way that makes you glad to be a fan. Um, And and Bennett, I think, does that better than anyone. Definitely. Before we get too far into the Enterprise lore, on the topic of Section 31, one other point I want to make is that when we see Section 31 in Deep Space Nine, it's very different. And of course, we saw Section 31 in Star Trek Into Darkness as well. We've been seeing them in the comics as well. I think it's very different because that's happening at a point where the Federation is very well established. The Federation has been around for hundreds of years. And then there's this kind of shadowy organization, shadowy activity that's going on underneath. Mm-hmm. And that parallels very well to our world today, especially Well, it applies probably to every government around the world. But what's in the news, of course, right now is what's going on with the U.S. Mm. and the government spy program and such. And that's a good parallel to Section 31 in the Federation in the 24th century, because in both cases, the the society, the government, the, the country has been around and established for hundreds of years, and then that's going on. But in this story... This is happening at the very founding of the Federation. And so it has more weight. And I think that's Archer's concern here is is what they're doing has much stronger implications for the future of the Federation. Because if this is allowed to take place, and of course we know that it is because it exists in the 24th century, but if it's allowed to take place and it goes too far, 
it could completely influence the entire way that the Federation is set up mm. and that the way that the Federation government uh, treats its citizens. And one thing that Archer, Archer tells Tripp that Starfleet intelligence can handle the Orions. And Tripp says, and so can we. Is there really that big of a difference? And Archer says, yeah, I think there is, because SI has to justify its actions to a government elected to represent the people. Now, now that I've worked with you, now that I've gotten a hint of the sort of thing your Section 31 is willing to do, you know, he's uncomfortable with that. And Tripp says, well, you know, it's okay. We're not going to we're not going to go too far. But Archer says, not yet. But who gets to decide how far is too far? Without some mechanism to keep a check on your agency's decision, who knows what it could become in the future? And what happens once the extreme threats are passed? What are you going to do to justify staying in business then? What if Section 31 becomes more about protecting its own secrecy than protecting the Federation? And I think that's a really big danger. And it's, you know, something I see today. You know, this a lot of what's going on today started in the name of protecting everyone against terrorism. But now you now you start to wonder whether it's just taken on a life of its own, and if those involved are just trying to protect the secrecy of it more so than actually trying to protect us. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really interesting, and and I love that um, you know Trip considers Archer's words. He says, you know, in the end, I hope you're right. I, I'd love to be out of a job. You know, yeah. and and you can see that that what Trip is doing, he believes in, because he be- does believe it's protecting the Federation, which is at the heart of what Section Thirty One was founded for, even before when it's just Earth. They've protected, they've created an agency to protect Earth, and now they're protecting more than just Earth. They're they're working to protect the Federation, and, and so it, it really is this that question though in the end. Uh, does the yeah. end justify the means? And I think really see um, to Paul in the situation and, and what how they counteract the mute situation to be, no, we need to understand, we need to communicate, we need to be able to find a way, even if it puts ourselves in danger, to avoid more bloodshed if we can. And usually the best way to do that is to find a way to bridge the gulf. And, uh, that's, that's, I think there's a counterbalance, you know, um, sometimes as you know, you see in the Romulan war books, there war is necessary, but, uh, there are other times where we don't need war and we'll, you know, you see that obviously with the dominion war, there was no way to not be in that war. And so, but how you win the war is, is a, is a different story. And, you know, we talked about on the orb a few weeks ago when we, we did our commentary for pale moonlight, that there are some times where things may need to be done for the greater good that uh, we might not all want to agree with. And we might just have to live with that. And I, that same argument is the argument that trips having that, you know, Benjamin Cisco has that same argument with himself sitting in with his captain's log of having to try to justify what he's done. Yeah. And, and, you know, they say here that if the last month, meaning the month of the story that we're reading here, if this last month has proven anything, it's that if you go looking for a fight, you tend to find it. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, exactly. like you said, the Dominion War, we couldn't avoid that that had to be fought. But here, with, of course, there are external forces here who are trying to create conflicts to prevent the Federation from forming successfully. You know, they're try- there's, it's still at a point here where the, the Federation is young enough that it could still be broken up. And you have external forces here who are, are playing these mute aliens at first. And then now, as we find out at the end, they're thinking of trying to use the Saurians, uh, you know, the source of Dr. McCoy's beloved Saurian brandy, trying to use the Saurians who also play a role in this book. There's a whole storyline surrounding them against the Federation to try to stir things up. But the 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 fact here, you know, if you are looking for a fight, you tend to find it. The way the story is set up, it does create that tug of war between the different races within this young federation, where you do have to pull the Vulcan who wants to try to negotiate. I mean, she almost gets herself killed, she almost gets Hoshi killed, but She's going to try the diplomatic route. And then you've got the Andorians who just want to fight. And so the struggle here and, you know, the, the whole thing here, A Choice of Futures, the, the title of the book, which one of these philosophies is going to win out? Well, and what's so interesting to see, and, and, and we know this from Star Trek lore, is that it depends on the situation, which one will win out, you know. There are times when the the Federation um, is, is going to need to be a little bit more militaristic. You know, uh, you, we see that again in the Dominion War. Um, you, you see that in Kirk's time with, with the, the constant threat of the Klingons who, you know, have a huge... Um, they, they spend so much money on their defense, you know, the Klingons. Uh, you have the Romulans who are always at the borders checking making sure seeing how they can you know infiltrate trying to create some trouble i mean so you have a really militaristic time uh you you know whereas then you get to the next generation time period and and it's quite uh, a lot more peaceful and and of course until the borg come around Um, and so it just really depends and i love seeing how a good democracy can morph itself to fit the situation that it finds itself in but be able to kind of return to a medium when it needs to be. Uh, and this is a Federation who's still trying to figure that out. And, and yeah. Bennett is doing such a great job of, of creating the arguments on all the sides so that we can see how they'll all kind of morph together into that idic that we know later on. Right. Which does get mentioned towards the end, right? That the Federation can now finally embrace the idea of idic. And moving forward. So you mentioned Enterprise lore earlier, and they do reference a number of events that we know from the TV series, which is great. And they also build upon it. I like the fact that Bennett goes all the way through describing Doug Drexler's Enterprise, uh, the NX class refit, which Doug calls the NXR. We actually, we just talked to Doug yesterday on Warp 5, which will be coming on. Oh, excellent. Uh, I can't wait to hear that. By the time this show, yeah, by the time this episode of Literary Tricks comes out, that episode of Warp 5 will be out. So you can go hear Doug talk all about this this refit. But I love the fact that 
that Bennett incorporates that into the story and actually carries you through the evolution of the ship design as well and, and helps bridge that gap between the NX class and gets us into the NX refit. So we know that what the humans did with their ship design, what Starfleet did even before we get into what really is uh, explained and described in this book, which is the the debate between the humans and the Andorians and the Tellarites, especially about, you know, what are the ship designs going to be like? And the Andorians want them to be more like Andorian ships and the humans want it to be more like human ships. Well, and this, Chris, is where a very surprised guest comes in to answer <laughs> yes. that question for us. And it's none other than Tobin Dax. Um, he yeah. is working on Reed ship. And I, I love that this is the character that comes in to, to answer the question about um, what are the ships of Starfleet going to look like? Why do they look like human starships? Why don't they look more like a conglomeration of, you know, human Andorian Tellarite? Why don't they, why don't they put all those together? And so Tobin, who's working on the USS Pioneer, which is, is, uh, Malcolm Reed's ship, he becomes a captain in this book, which is fantastic. And we'll talk a little bit just kind of what the the characters get to do in this book. Uh, Bennett uses each one of them, I think, perfectly uh, and creates just very vivid Enterprise characters. But, you know, Tobin Mm -hmm. here is working on Starfleet ship design. Uh, You know, what are they going to look like? And he talks about how the way that Starfleet has designed its ships makes it more multi-purpose so that it can do what it is that Starfleet is made to do, which is to be explorers, but also be able to fight if they have to. And that the design elements of Starfleet also help incorporate some of those designs that the the Tellarites have, that the Andorians have, their technologies, and it works better as well internally for, you know, um, having larger crews, compartments, all those kind of things. I just thought it was really interesting that they actually answered the question through Tobin, which was great to have him. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, why do starships look relatively human in design? and yet have all these technologies that come from the rest of the Federation races. Right, right. Um, One thing Doug told us about the ship design there, too, was that, say, the engineering section, this would be different than, say, an Andorian ship, of course, as they're debating here about the designs in this book. The engineering section on the refit is modular so that when they get back to space dock, they could slide the entire engineering section out and slide in a new upgraded redesigned engineering section right into the ship and you're ready to go. So that's a great benefit, right, of the human ship design. Right, which <laughs> I love. We just, it sounds like a Lego ship, you know. Oh, nope, just took that part off and we just put the new one in. <laughs> it's really cool, though. But yeah, I like Tobin being here because it creates a connection to the larger Star Trek universe. And it makes sense because we know that Tobin was... Uh, an engineer and a warp field specialist. And I also like the fun of no one knowing what trills really are in this book, because now trill is not part of the Federation here, just like Denobula is not part of the Federation. So I guess Tobin is there on some sort of exchange program, the way Flux became 
you know, the the doctor on the NX-01 originally, he's just he's just there, but it's very interesting. And then when when he has to have a medical examination because of radiation exposure, and uh, the doctor finds out, uh, the doctor on the pioneer finds out that he has this worm in his belly. There's a worm in your belly. But there's a, <laughs> finds out about this worm and is so shocked by it. And, you know, Tobin's been he's been refusing to have a medical exam because he doesn't want to reveal this information. And but what I love is the doctor thinks, you know, we still really don't know what Romulans look like. We don't know what Romulans are. Is this a Romulan? Are they some sort of parasite that gets in and takes over people's bodies? And is this their way of continuing to infiltrate us? After the war is over, I just thought that was really funny that the idea that, oh, maybe the Romulans are actually these little slug-like parasites, because still throughout the Romulan War, humans have still never actually seen a Romulan at this point. Well, and it just makes sense, you know, and, and you know, our human sensibilities of of what a, you know, the Trill symbiont, if we had never heard of that before because of yeah. Star Trek, would probably be one of like, oh, what? That's disgusting. <laughs> you know, I we would have that kind of reaction. And so I really enjoyed getting to see that and, and to have, you know, uh, the doctor here on, on the Pioneer as well as Malcolm Reed end up being in on the secret since Tobin, spoiler alert, becomes the chief engineer for a while as um, Malcolm's chief engineer is incapacitated for a while and is going to be in recovery for a few months. And uh, since Tobin's been working so closely on the ship, Malcolm offers him chief engineer, which is, is going to be fantastic in, in the next book to be able to have him around, um, putting yeah. around in, in the engineering section. And so um, one more... Uh, face that i really just want to mention that i loved her inclusion i always loved cutler on enterprise and and unfortunately the actress died and was not able to continue they were actually going to have her be kind of a major role as as things went on and uh we're not able to do that so the enterprise books have, have kept her around and i loved the fact that she's the science officer now on the endeavor to paul's ship um it was just great i i thought it was a great service to her the actress um and uh it just it, i don't know something about that whole thing you know her not being able to continue on the show she was a fantastic character um had a lot more depth unfortunately in that first season than mayweather ever did and and we never got to to have her around again but to be able to have her in some way back uh i, I just thought was wonderful to see and a great job for bennett to to, to do that for her so yeah, I was glad to see her there too, because uh, as many people who listen to the shows know, I, I really like Cutler. She's my Leffler of Enterprise, so I'm glad to oh, see goodness. her. Oh, goodness. I'm the right there with well. you, buddy. We might have to fight <laughs> over uh, the Cutler. So, <laughs> Now, you mentioned Mayweather, and he actually gets a new gig in this story. He gets to be, well, he gets promoted to lieutenant commander, and he gets to be the first officer under Captain Reed. Yeah, I think this is, you know, really just probably the last thing we should talk about. But all of the characters in this book are used so well. Uh, I feel like Bennett really has 
the pulse of each character and, and really where they should go. And so everywhere that they ended up, I felt was really justified. Um, you know, seeing Malcolm become a captain, seeing, as you were talking about, Mayweather becoming uh, a first officer, somebody, you know, Mayweather does have a lot of potential as a character. They just didn't give him enough to do. And his his vitality, his vivaciousness um, is is what Malcolm really needed because he's not a man who really has close relationships with people and so wanting to be able to use that and 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 benefit from that that's sort of like picard and Riker on the enterprise d exactly yes travis is more like Riker in the sense that he's much friendlier he's more outgoing he's he can connect with the other crew members really easily on a friendship level where Picard is much more to himself on TNG. And Reed is kind of like that too. You know, Reed is not, he's not someone who really socializes so much. He's very much, I'm here to do my job. I'm going to keep to myself. And is kind of uncomfortable, I think, in social situations. Yeah, definitely. And and it it gives him the um, ability too to be able to grow. I really like that Mayweather throughout the entire book is really pushing Reed to, to get out of his comfort zone. And I love the end of the book where where uh, finally Reed has to admit to his entire crew something really embarrassing that, that there's been this whole thing with the transporters and that they have been not really necessarily aligning people the way they should if you use yeah. them so many times as, as the Enterprise crew has and, and that, you know, Starfleet has really started to use transporters over and over again. And so Archer really suffering from this disease that, that that's come about because of it. And, and Reed really as well, finding out he's not going to be able to have children and that really weighing on him um, this whole book. And when he finally has that speech where he comes out and just, you know, blunt force tells his crew, look, this is happening in my life. And I realized that my true family now is is Starfleet. You're my family. Um, and I loved that moment that he comes to and, and really coming out of his shell. And I think it's going to be great to see him grow as a character. But I mean, you know, T'Pol gets great moments in this book. Hoshi has so much to do in this book. I mean, um, being told by Shran that he he's he's constantly impressed by her bravery um, and, and just mm-hmm. what she's willing to do. I, I think all of these characters are so well served. So I don't know, Chris, final thoughts. Well, yeah, final thoughts are we've covered, you know, all the basics pretty well. As I said at the beginning of the discussion, I think it's a really good book. It's not um, as action. I mean, if you're looking for a super action packed book, it's not so action packed. Although it does have it does have some space battles in it, it does have uh, some different crises that they have to deal with. But what I like about it is this whole discussion about how the Federation is going to come together, and I think that's the goal of the book. That's why the book is called Rise of the Federation. And I think the book is completely true to its title, completely true to the goal that Bennett had in writing it. He does a great job of carrying you through. One month, one key month in the rise of the Federation. And the subtitle, A Choice of Futures, is also perfect because that's what the entire struggle is about in the book. 
And I think Bennett did a great job of putting our characters and putting the different founding members of the Federation into several situations that really made them sit down and debate with one another about where they were headed and why they're doing this in the first place. And and then we have a lot of fun seeing how different things come together, especially with the technologies. And that really connected with me personally. I found that very interesting. And the there's a little bit of a debate there over the Prime Directive. There's a little bit of talk about uh, why the Vulcans held humans back in the first place about, you know, it wasn't only to protect other cultures from them, it's also to protect them from other cultures. And, and that was quite interesting. Uh, the, the only thing, you know, that was missing here for me really was an Andorian fight scene. And there were so many Andorians in the book that I expected to see just a flat out brawl somewhere in a corridor and it didn't happen. But, you know, I can forgive Bennett for that because there was enough other stuff going on that it it kept me very interested. So, you know, I think um, I'd give this maybe eight out of 10 Tellerite tractor beams. You know, Chris, I, I, I think that this book did everything that I wanted it to, to set the world, to set the stage, to, to really world build, to kind of get into um, what it's like to be in this time period and tell me that. Um, to use action when it needs it to, to use character uh, analysis when it needs to. It's giving me everything that just a great um, Star Trek book should do, um, especially in a time period that we don't know anything about. I think Bennett really balances everything really well. I think the intrigue of what's happening throughout the plot, figuring it out, um, the fact that the Orion slave girls from the the episode bound or behind all of this was just fantastic it it really um the fact that they are just really disturbed by the fact that the federation is around and worried what it's going to mean for them and their nefarious you know schemes i just think that everything is so well put together in this book bennett really has a uh, the ability to pull lots of different things from star trek lore and make them all seem like they fit perfectly together and I think this is no exception. Um, and so, you know, I think that, uh, honestly, I'd have to give this probably 9 out of 10 Orion Slave Girls. Wow, that's, a, that's quite a rating. <laughs> that's, I, think that, uh, I think this book will be very happy to have 9 Slave Girls. Are are, Sorry, are books susceptible to pheromones? <laughs> I don't think so, Chris. Uh, I don't think we need to worry about that. Your Star Trek books are All safe right. if any Orions come around. <laughs> okay, well, that that's good to know. All right, great. Well, Matthew, this has been really fun talking about this book. Great to explore the, the founding of the Federation with you. But it's not the only thing that we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So here are some other things that you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Orb. Vic Fontaine. Just something about kind of a wise-cracking, smart-ass, you know, 60s rat packer seemed to fit with this group on Deep Space Nine. The Ready Room. Explorers. It didn't cost that much. They just... 
they just sent Avery down to Home Depot <laughs> and they just let Avery build the whole set. Uh, that was all done in real time. I can imagine. They shot it as Avery can, was building the set. I can see set. that now. Decade. Star Trek Online. You know, whilst at Tom's offices were all in seven of nine skin tight cat suits. To the journey! The Herogen. Just the sheer fact of how they tied up Seven and Tuvok was like, okay, this is not just handcuffs. Like these, this, like these people know <laughs> how to tie people up. Like that's like, like it's their job. Commentary: Trek stars. The Shrinking Man. You're gonna go from one seventh to maybe just shy of zero, but then the next day, poof, you turn into zero. Warp five. An Enterprise sampler the studio didn't really want to go that far back in terms of a prequel that we do eventually get the chance to see that and know that this is really where the writers hearts were Trek news and views Voyager season 7 this is the thing it's this, I know the doctor is created in the image of Zimmerman and Zimmerman's bold and blah 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 but surely to God if you was created an alter ego of yourself you would give yourself hair literary treks TNG ghosts. You pull things out one by one, one by one, and then the computer keeps bringing it down until you've got like four or five left, and then you stick them on a pad and you go have a staff meeting about it. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of those shows as well. We have new Trek talk for you every day of the week. Some days we even have two new shows for you, so go check them out. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox. You can stream them from the website. Pretty much anywhere you want to listen to your podcast, you'll find them there. And you can go to trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get an easy list with links to various sources. Matthew, let's tell everyone where to contact us if they'd like to share their thoughts on Enterprise, on Rise of the Federation, or anything else that we talked about today. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that will come to Matthew and me by email. If you'd like to send us a voicemail, you can do that as well. You can easily do it from any page on the website. Just look along the right-hand side. You'll see a tab that says Send Voicemail. If you click that tab, a box will pop up, and you can use your webcam's microphone to record a message for us and upload it to us as an MP3 file. If you'd like to join into a bigger discussion with other listeners, other fans of Enterprise and the Trek FM crew, you can do that in our forums at trek.fm slash forums. There's a section there for literary treks. There's one for Enterprise. There's one for books. And uh, join in the conversation there. If you're on Facebook, you'll find us at facebook.com slash trekfm. And you'll always find us tweeting away about Star Trek all the time on Twitter under username trekfm. Now, Matthew, if people would like to find you personally, where should they go? Well, Chris, uh, you can find me on Twitter at mattrushing02. Um, I also have my own website uh, called 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com where I just write about all sorts of different things, book reviews, movie reviews. Um, just check it out. I think you'll like it. Um, and then, of course, we do The Orb every week, Chris, where we talk Deep Space Nine all the time. Uh, and so if you uh, just enjoy uh, hearing about one of the shows in depth, which we do, we don't do episode reviews, but we really just go in depth the issues. And we do talk about some episodes every once in a while, but I think you'll just enjoy it. Uh, and then, of course, I do the book reviews here on Trek FM as well. Well, Chris, when you're not hanging out with your own Orion Slave Girls, where can people find you? Yeah, it's 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 hard, you know. I, I try to tweet sometimes, but 
you know, it's hard to resist those pheromones. It's a little bit hard to actually get really over is. to the phone or the keyboard to actually tweet. But when I do, you'll find those at C. Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. And you can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username. And like you, Matthew, I also have my own website at cbrianjones.com. So if you'd like to read some of my writing on non-Trek topics, uh, look at some photos, find out what kind of music I like, and, and all this other stuff that's going on. Football, of course, with football season coming up. You'll find all that over at cbrianjones.com. You'll also find me elsewhere on the network, of course, Matthew, with you on the orb, but also with Kate Walsh on Warp 5 every week, where we talk about Enterprise. The same setup as the orb. We don't do episode reviews. We talk about the series as a whole. And uh, we've had a lot of great guests on there, Dave Rossi, Brandon Braga, and then this week, Doug Drexler. So uh, great interviews and discussions for you to listen to over there. Also, you'll find me on The Ready Room every week, where we discuss all five live-action Star Trek series, as well as the films and other topics. Matthew, you're there with me quite often on The Ready Room, as are other hosts from all across the network and other special guests from throughout Star Trek. So check that out as well at trek.fm slash TRR. Now, Matthew, before we let everyone go, we would like to ask you to please support our sponsors for this week's show. Your support of our sponsors is very important to allowing us to bring literary treks to you every week. First, there's Squarespace, the best hosting and CMS that you'll find anywhere on the web. It makes it simple for you to create a beautiful blog, website, a portfolio, an online store, really anything you can imagine. I've been a Squarespace user for six years. Trek FM is built on Squarespace. My personal site is, my company site and I build sites for clients there as well. So go there and create your own space. I promise you're going to love it. Go to squarespace.com for your free 14-day trial. No credit card is required. Try it absolutely free. And then when you do sign up, use offer code TREK8 to save 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts. And we thank Squarespace for their support of literary treks, and of course you for supporting Squarespace. Also, please visit trekfan.org. Now, I love to talk about Star Trek, whether it's the TV series or books or whatever. And Matthew, I know you do too. But if we just sit around and talk about Star Trek all the time, we're never going to found the Federation. We're never going to get to have these debates with Vulcans and Tellarites and Andorians about starship design and whether we're going to explore or conquer other worlds. What we need to do is we need to be solving real-life puzzles and mission objectives. And that's what you'll do with fellow fans at trekfan.org. And along the way, you'll win great prizes. So turn your love for Star Trek into something that can help us all move toward that future we love. Support us and support TrekFan by visiting trekfan.org. And we thank TrekFan for their support of literary treks and the network as well. And lastly, if you would personally like to support the network and our programming, we have a way for you to do that as well. You can go to trek.fm slash donate. We have eight new alien-themed badges as a thank you for your contribution, and they're perfect for your shirt, for your bag, or even for your transitional Starfleet uniform. It looks kind of like the TOS ones, but, you know, it has a patch on the side. They're 44-millimeter badges with original illustration by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. And we also now have art prints as well with these aliens. They're larger a 5 size art prints. They're very beautiful. And you can get all of these at trek.fm slash donate. There are various donation levels for you to choose from. And your contributions help us cover the costs of production, storage, and bandwidth that's needed to bring this programming to you every week. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. And until next time, live long 
and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. This is the second installment of Christopher L. Bennett's Enterprise Ride of the... Ride? Jesus. <laughs> Ride, of, Ride the of the Federation. It just sounds like a trip book. Ride <laughs> on Federation. Yeah, We're going for a ride. <laughs> Better hold on your britches. Who do you think you're messing with here? Does this look like a Starfleet uniform? <laughs> I'm going to take you on a ride. And you ain't going to like it. (laughs) Okay, let me start this over.